Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have with us for the first time Paul Schultz. He is the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Mallard, Iowa, and Zion Lutheran Church in Ayrshire, or is it Ayrshire? Uh, mostly we just go with Ayrshire. Okay, Ayrshire, Iowa. So uh, welcome for the first time, Paul. Thank you very much. It's great to be on. So you are a contributor to the recently released Festrift in honor of John Stevenson, one of our bloggers and editors, Servant of Christ Church. We've already had a chance to talk to uh, Fritz Eckert, uh, as well as Stephen Preuss, about their contributions. And so now, today, I wanted to talk about yours. The title is, you know, cleverly uh, compiled, Familiarity Breeds Contemplation and Historical and Practical Examination of Fixed Liturgical Rites. So I'm curious, before we kind of launch into why you, um, or what you found in your research, why why this topic? What, what are you seeing um, where you're serving, and just in the church in general and at large, that a discussion or a a refamiliarizing ourselves with fixed liturgical texts is so important and needed in our day. Yeah, so it's not really, uh, it's only a specific interest of mine, probably in the past five or 10 years. But uh, looking back when I was doing the research, I realized I've kind of been interested in this topic as long as I can remember. Um, I had a bit of a unique childhood, and my dad was invited to preach around what you know most of the Missouri Synod. And uh, being an only kid, he usually dragged me along, so I got to see the wide, wide variety of uh, Sunday morning services in the LCMS. And when you're a kid, right, you just assume that the institutions or the the people in charge are kind of all they've got it all figured out. And then mm-hmm. you kind of realize as you get a little older that not everybody has it figured out and just the variety and nobody could ever really explain to me the theological reason for the variety. So mm-hmm. I, I started asking before I went to seminary, you know, why do you do this? Or why do you do this? Or why do you not do this? Mm-hmm. And what I've learned, and I, I've especially been asking this in the past couple of years, uh, is that not a lot of reasoning for what people might do on Sunday morning that isn't necessarily uh, strictly commanded in the scriptures, their reasoning is not usually all that theological and usually Mm -hmm. much more sort of uh, community practical for lack of a better word, if that makes sense. So I was, I was just interested to see how we got to this point. And, and I know, I know that Walther complains that this wasn't good in his day and, you know, Lochner complains that it wasn't good in his day, but I even if it's a constant complaint, it's still something to look at and, and wonder why. Yeah. Uh, the, in other words, perhaps the slippery slope isn't always a fallacy. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I really don't think that it is. I mean, so, but so, that's just uh, so me. when, so yeah, so when you were traveling with your dad, um, so what kind of conversations would ensue after the fact? Um, what were the discussions like with him when you discussed these things uh, on your return trips? Uh, interesting. <laughs> um, my, my dad uh, was a graduate of um, Springfield in the late 60s. And mm-hmm. so liturgical education at that time was, uh, as, as I heard from someone who went there in the same generation, it was relatively limited to something along the lines of the last about the last two weeks before you would get your call, the president would kind of take you through, like, now you face this way, now you face this way, like practice mm-hmm. chanting a bit. And there really wasn't that much. Mm-hmm. So um, he and I would both kind of wonder, basically, uh, about, you know, where did they get that from? Or uh, mm-hmm. as he kind of humorously texted me yesterday about a, a situation I observed recently, he said, well, the first thing you have to remember in the LCMS is that with God, all things are possible. So, um, <laughs> you know, let the, let the reader understand. So, yeah. Uh, good. Yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of where we're at. I mean, I mean, we'd talk about it, but it was kind of like, you know, what do you do? It's not your parish and, uh, it's not, it's, it's never good to go away from a parish just complaining about everything that's wrong when you visit. I mean, you know, you never know the situation there. You never yeah. know what the pastor's dealing with. So, mm-hmm. no, that, that, I mean, that is a good point to not be completely black pilled on all these things. Um, so, familiarity breeds contemplation. No, why, yeah. why do you say that? So, so, well, so, so I did not, I like that you said that it was clever. I can't claim it uh, by any means. Um, I have here the latest Logia issue, actually, on the Formula Missae. Mm-hmm. And in Stevenson's article, he says where he got the term. And he just, he kind of kept repeating it to me throughout seminary. He always wanted me to write a paper about it, seemingly. Uh, you know, professors do that. They they want something researched, but they don't want to do it. So they just <laughs> tell a kid to do it. Um, but he says, I am grateful to the unnamed scholar for his phrase, familiarity breeds contemplation. And apparently it was one of his tutors at Oxford. So that's where the cleverness comes from. Okay. But, uh, right, so it's a play on the on the common phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, which mm-hmm. is somehow how, uh, if you do the same service every Sunday, it ends up, you know, seeming for some people that they really just hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, when you realize that, that the or and 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 we'll get to a definition of what I mean by right here soon because it's it is pretty specific and that will keep some people hopefully from getting offended. Um, yeah. But when you realize that the rights that we have uh, historically given, right, not necessarily uh, scripturally commanded, but historically given and handed down, they they're all God's word. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, I don't feel comfortable saying, well, we put, we shouldn't repeat it too much. You know, yeah. it seems like a dangerous thing to say. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's how I, I began the, the article is uh, Valerius Herberger, who I, I'm sure, you know, a great reformation preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about how ministers are commanded to require uh, required to repeat the same teaching many times, according to Philippians three, one, that good mm-hmm. things cannot be spoken of too much in a good song 
should be sung thrice. And I, I vaguely remember a story. Maybe it was one of you Gottesteins guys about somebody who would, he knew that his congregation didn't like the good Orthodox hymns. So when they wouldn't sing loud enough, he'd get up and say, that was a good one. Let's sing it again. And they would. <laughs> um, I, I yeah. forget who that was. But, you know, when, when people complain about repeating the holy things too often, that's, that's not a reflection on the holy things, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we could use a bit more Ernie Banks in our approach to things, you know. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful day. Let's play too. Um, yeah. And yeah. often often our our own attitudes end up playing into how our people perceive these things as well. And so really we are given to have a joyfulness about it before they are. Well, and, and one thing I was talking to uh, one of my closest brothers in the ministry about a couple months back um, is that the uh, I, w- I was rereading the introduction to Pelican's five volume history. And he, mm-hmm. he points out in there quite astutely that, that the first third of the Christian church uh, theology was done by the bishops, the second third by the monks, and the third third by the academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you notice in that, tr- in that progression that the, the people doing the theology become less and less involved in the public worship service. Mm-hmm. Um, right? You move... From, from bishops to monks. And again, I, I, I have to speak generally because it's such a wide claim. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you move more into the monastery and then from the monastery, at least you're praying there. Mm-hmm. But then you move to the academics. And uh, as a, a dear friend recently <laughs> sent me a message and said, there, there's, there's sometimes a special place for academics in Hades because, <laughs> because they're completely con- disconnected from the life that is supposed to come out of the words that they are commenting on. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, this, this happens to me and maybe it's just because I'm not always the brightest bulb in the box, but like just, just this past, uh, let's see, Thursday, right? Ascension. We were singing the Gloria. Man, I've been singing that same Gloria for 30, 30 years now. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it explains the Ascension in there, that the Ascension yeah. is where we get the mercy from. Mm-hmm. But if I hadn't have had that there... And uh, and had that deep in me, I don't know if I would have recognized that so clearly. So, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot to contemplate. And when you're, I mean, it's even in the collect, right? Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. That's the same thing. It's it's in our prayers. Mm-hmm. So, surveying history, then, why why are the rights of the church so so important? Where do they? It seems like it's where the rubber hits the road, where theology becomes uh, immediately practical. But th- perhaps there's more there. Yeah, uh, let me let me just look up something here. Uh, there's this wonderful book. Uh, one of your editors has referenced it before on the blog, called "Lutherans and Calvinists in the Age of Confessionalism" by a man named Bodo Nishan, N I S C H A N. And uh, it's not cheap if you can even find a copy, uh, mm-hmm. but I did have a copy given to me, and it, it's just wonderful. So it's the, the time period when, right, when we, the people were really working out the Reformation. And he's got this sentence in here about the Fractio Panis, right, the, the Reformed or the Calvinist breaking of the, of the wafer to prove that Christ isn't there. And it's, he says, Lutherans rejected the fraction, Calvinists insisted on it. 
At a time when both Lutherans and Calvinists were using similar or identical language with different meanings to describe the sacrament, specific liturgical practices, such as the breaking of the bread, came to symbolize basic theological disagreements that otherwise were not apparent. And one of the points he makes throughout the book is that the purpose of uh, not not just reverent, but very purposeful rites uh, mm-hmm. is for the sake of the people who don't have either sometimes the ability, uh, most often just simply don't have the time, or uh, they, they aren't given the vocation of studying theology like pastors are. And so it's it's basically your quick and dirty way to communicate this is what we believe. So like when you yeah. do this, right? I mean, going back to the example from earlier, what you know, which way do you face? When you face the altar, it's on behalf of the people, right? The people to God. When you face the other way, it's God to the people. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the service works if you don't make that differentiation, but it works better if you do. Correct. So uh, so all of these things are, and, and, and you get this, I mean, any, any pastor who's taken a call to a, a parish they weren't previously at knows this. You show yeah. up, you do something, and then somebody asks you, oh, why'd you do that? Yeah. You know, well, do you have an explanation or not? Um, and, and, and yeah, so uh, the other things that they would fight about during that time, I mean, this, he's got great stories in here. There's this guy that he was just a simple butcher, but the, the Calvinists rejected that that anything really spiritual was happening in, in baptism. It was an outward symbol of involvement in the church. So they mm-hmm. would, uh, they did not do an exorcism. They refused and uh, they refused to do private baptisms because mm-hmm. if the point is to introduce the kid to your church, does that sound familiar? Um, you know, then, yeah. then it can only happen in the public assembly. So uh, there he's, he's got this story about this butcher and this butcher's got a few daughters who need to be baptized. And the butcher's Lutheran, and the, they suspect the pastor of being a Calvinist. So the butcher says, you will be baptizing my children in the, with the Lutheran rite. And uh, when he came for the baptism, he brought his cleaver to make sure that the exorcism was performed. <laughs> right? So, so somebody was going to be cast out either way. Yeah. Uh, let's just make sure it's Satan. Yeah. So, you know, th- these, these are things that ha- the, the lay people... Uh, I mean, they have, it, it really is all about the lay people. Uh, and yeah. we'll get to that in Gerhardt. Yeah. So it's it seems, if I'm hearing you right, like the choice is not whether you're going to have ritual or not have ritual. The choice is whether that ritual is going to bear any resemblance to what you actually believe and teach and confess. And, and we should be cognizant of that because as you know, the Augsburg Confession indicates, you know, we retain these things in order that the people may be instructed, uh, discipled, as it were, instructed in what they need to know about Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, just, I, I think before we go forward, we should really define what we mean by right. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it's 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 a little bit more specific than ritual, at least in the way I'm using it. And uh, if I remember correctly, I do think I took time to uh, to explain this in the paper. But it is in the New Companion to the Services volume of Lutheran Service Book. It's on page 18, and uh, Doctor Winger has uh, included one of he he always has a little uh, some sort of visualization 
And so he, the rite is distinguished from liturgy and ceremony. So um, confessionally speaking, when you, when you do the liturgy, it's not setting three. Like setting three is the, the specific form of the liturgy that you do. Uh, but mm-hmm. the liturgy is the, the giving of the word in the sacrament and, and, you know, kind of, I don't want to say abstract, but like the theological uh, essential core of it. Mm-hmm. But the rite is sort of the, the, uh, the set outward visible form. And then, and then the ceremonies like the decorations, right? Mm-hmm. So like the Chris, you know, Christmas tree represents Christmas. That's liturgy. And then the tree is the rite, and the ceremony is the decorations or something. Mm-hmm. And we we are we are scripturally bound. This this he has it laid out like a continuum. So liturgy is on the left. This is unchangeable, divinely commanded. Uh, it requires our fidelity. And on the far mm-hmm. right uh, is ceremony, which is totally human decision, and everything there should be done with charity. But right mm-hmm. in the middle is the right, yeah. which is. Uh, he he says we need discernment instead of charity here, and and that is true, right? I mean, all of Luther's liturgical forms were just, uh, you know, wise discernment. They weren't whole cloth new creations or anything, right? Um, but I I specifically in my paper limit the discussion of fixed and repetitive rites to the text of the service, and yeah. in in doing that, I was kind of taking the lead of the uh, the Lutheran Liturgical Association who, who produced the common service and yeah. the common service, properly speaking, is only the text of what the, the, the Sunday morning service, the divine service, the matins and vespers, right? Yes. And then, and then we have multiple musical settings. So. Yeah. The, um, and that's typically how I've spoken about it as well with my people. And, um, even among the editors here at Godestines is, you know, we, distinguish right from the adornments of that right, whether it's ceremonies or musical setting, um, just by what is actually said, uh, not what is done, right. what is said. And um, and then you can have even in the adornments, you know, better or worse, so to speak. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, it's... Yeah. yeah. So, you're, so, so you're limiting in your discussion here of right to what is actually said. So the, if I'm going to use something concrete here, so if we're doing page 15, you mean the, the wording of the Gloria, the wording of the Nunc Dimittis, the wording of the words of institution, everything that is yeah, the, 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 or, the ordinaries and the responses. Yeah. Um, all that. Yeah. So. And, and that, and to limit the words, the right there to a single standard that aids in memory and as well as contemplation then. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of started off my argumentation with the syllogism. Um, and, and the first syllogism is, is that the uh, that you were supposed to bring the faithful into a supremely personal union with Christ, uh, mm-hmm. and th- this comes from the New Testament specific definition of disciple of Methetes. Uh, the TDNT says it's it's just got this unique meaning in the New Testament that it doesn't have in the rest of Greek, uh, but that it's but the general meaning, of course, right, is that you're learning, uh, mm-hmm. and that as we learn about 
uh, Christ, we are brought closer to him. It's, it's not knowledge that provides salvation, it's faith, but these things are intimately and necessarily related. And so the, you know, syllogism one is that, or line one of the syllogism, I should say, would be that, you know, the, uh, that we are supposed to make disciples, make methetes, make people who learn and, and inwardly digest all this knowledge about their savior. Um, and then, uh, you know, just kind of the general observable truth that we all have heard that repetition is the mother of all learning. So if you want to learn, you have to repeat it. Uh, mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, all the disciples should be repeating things uh, yeah. very, very frequently. Um, and mm-hmm. and I know that this probably would make more sense if it were applied strictly to catechism class or something. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that Luther didn't really treat, uh, you know, the catechism and the hymnal all that differently in terms of these texts. One of the one of the things you know, people could go look up in volume 53 is Luther had to write all these, uh, volume 53 of Luther's works, Luther had to write all these introductions to hymnals. And he, his frustration time after time was like, quit changing these things. Right. <laughs> um, I think I've heard you talk about this, but I've done this in my Bible class a couple times, you know, going through the the catechism and stuff. Well, let's all recite it together. Well, you've got three generations in a room. And now yes. they, they all know different versions. It's all, and everybody laughed and I, I didn't have to prove, I didn't have to write an essay. They saw the point right away. I said, we yeah. should all be saying the same words. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I still have folks who refuse to say the creeds in the updated language. <laughs> it's, oh uh, yeah. 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 So that's how they learned it. Yep. So that's, that's kind of the thing is just that creating disciples uh, happens logically through repetition. That was the basis uh, for me to get back. And I, I wanted to make it more of a historical study, but I, yeah. So I was hoping it would be longer too. I had other things, but mostly I ended up in Gerhardt and, okay. uh, and he starts in an interesting, interesting place. So I'm, I'm looking at his, I have his two theological commonplaces. What is this? 26 version one and 26 two. So it's on the ministry. It's a wonderful pair of books. You should, you should all buy them. But to begin speaking about, uh, to begin speaking about the duties of the pastors of the office of the ministry, he doesn't go to first Timothy like we probably would, right? He mm-hmm. takes a much much wider view. So he explains that he begins in heaven, actually, which I thought was genius. So he says, among the holy angels who are, who are involved in constant warfare against the dragon of hell and his angels, orders were divinely established. For this reason, the apostle distributes the invisible things into heaven, into thrones and dominions and principalities and so on. Um, and so he, he then says, so also here on earth in the church militant, which is a copy of the church triumphant, orders have in the same way been defined by God. And this is, this is where he gets right the definition of the church, the office of the ministry, all this sort of stuff. Um, and for the first time in my life, I saw somebody speak about ecclesiology from Song of Songs. Uh, and he, he did, because I guess Song of Songs talks about a terribly ordered battle, battle line. And mm. that's what, uh, 
That's what Gerhardt warns against. So this this repetition of right for Gerhardt is is nothing more than than making sure your militant army of the church, right? Not in the you know, in, not in some of the ways that people talk about that, but rather in in the biblical way of speaking about the battle that's going on. That we need mm-hmm. to be well ordered uh, because, um, you know, in in military uh, history, where most people die in a battle is not the battle. It's in what's called the rout, uh, the R O U T. So when you're mm-hmm. when 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 the enemy gets a slight advantage on you and your ranks break then they overwhelm and they kill all your people because you're yeah. disordered. You can't take a stand. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where most battle casualties come from in a lot of major battles, you know, probably pre 1950 or something. Yeah. Um, so does, so is, is does Kimnitz, um, I'm, I mean, Gerhard, is yeah. Gerhard operating under the understanding that uh, of the, the hoplite phalanx here, that, that ordered, that everyone has sort of the same weaponry and the same uh, tactics moving forward, and they're operating as one unit against a common enemy. Yeah, I mean, he, so he gets there. I mean, it takes him till volume two to describe the du- the specific duties of the ministry. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he begins with the three estates. So, you know, kind of defining, well, what's the church here to do? What What is the church's vocation? Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, uh, so he, he ends up in volume two, I guess we'll just go ahead to that. Um, he ends up getting, let me find it here. He lists the five duties of ministers under the papacy, uh, which is to offer sacrifices to preside, though he points out, uh, not in the apostolic sense that they are supposed to bless, they are to baptize, they are to preach, even though none of them preach, and that's it. Uh, but then, let me see if I can find my page here. Uh, the the duties of the ministers in the Lutheran Church, he, he gives as seven, you know, probably intentionally. So you have mm-hmm. preaching the word, dispensing the sacraments, right? We're all on board already. Praying mm-hmm. for the flock committed to them. I know you've you've written a lot about that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the honorable governance of behavior and life, uh, Chemnitz, <laughs> Chemnitz, I'm not sure would, would be on the call list for a certain amount of, uh, American Lutheran churches, yeah. uh, because he says that, that a, that a minister who misbehaves destroys the gospel. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he can actually prevent people from coming to faith, uh, through public action, uh, yeah. Five, administration of church discipline, right? Something we usually leave to the other Protestants as like a mark of the church or, or duties of the ministers. Then I'm going to skip six and head to seven, the care of the poor and the visitation of the sick. Okay, well, most of us do that. And then uh, number six, he specifically lists the preservation of ecclesiastical rituals. And he's got plenty of reasoning for it. But I thought it was interesting that it wasn't listed you know, it, it's not like he had a list of essential duties and adiaphora duties <laughs> or something or like however you would do, however you would divide that up. This is an essential duty, according to, to Gerhardt, of the, of the ministers of the church. Um, now, now, just to be clear, before you get, uh, you know, a thousand emails about how you're a sacerdotalist and you shouldn't have a sacerdotalist like me on, uh, he is very clear 
that the rights belong to the church. The mm-hmm. institution of the rights belongs not to ministers alone, but to the Christian magistrate. Well, be nice to have one. And right. it ought to be done with the consent of the whole church. So, I mean, I, I guess for us, that would be synodical approval would yeah. be the closest. Um, right. And, we, and we've, we've always had that in the LCMS, whether we enforce it or not, that, that you're supposed to use approved rights, approved hymnals, approved worship yeah. resources. Um, now, he does make a distinction, though, between to whom does the, the, the whole thing belong and whose duty is it to take care of it? Because the duty of the preservation of the rights is assigned to the ministers. Mm-hmm. Now, so you're saying, I, I mean, the like, rights themselves belong to the whole church, including right. yeah, the yeah, magistrates correct. and the people, but the duty to preserve them is given to the minister himself. Yeah, um, and. You know, not not uh, uh, not by the consent of the governed. Let the reader understand. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, although you know, we we can talk about that too if we need to. Um, obviously, the well, I guess the consent of the whole church, but it seems like he's sort of expecting, you know, a, a lot more uh, conservatism than maybe we're we're used to in some areas. Yeah. But anyway. So why, why do they have to do this? What is the goal of preserving these rights? Um, it's not uh, some sort of liturgical repristination, right? Like we see in some churches that like totally give up doctrine, but man, mm-hmm. do they have pretty copes uh, yeah. and, and fancy candles and stuff. So it, it's not that. It's not just to do it. Uh, he says church rituals by nature are adiaphora. Uh, they do not themselves constitute a part of divine worship. And this is interesting, right next to the word adiaphora, nevertheless, they should not be cut short or abrogated merely by one part of the church. Mm. So you, you can't have, and I don't know if he means here regional part or if he means uh, like clergy or laity as each being parts. Okay. Uh, but either way, nobody is given a right to change the right. <laughs> Uh, you know, just in their place or in their own time. So what's the risk? You were going to say something. Um, So, so is Gerhard operating with a, just a slightly larger understanding of right then, than how you are? Yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I would say yes. And I, I just limited myself so as to not, I, I didn't want people to think I was just commenting on, you know, a specific hymnal or something. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so to to kind of put your argument into context, if Gerhard includes more to what the definition of right is, surely your definition of less of what right is is included. Yeah, that that was my goal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Argue, argue from a, a a conservative position. Yeah. So so, but what I found interesting, um, you know, because. You know, let's 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 be honest. Uh, you know the worship wars died like 15, 20 years ago. Like the the battle lines are set so well that the fortresses are just super well built. You know mm-hmm. these the the fighting over this has largely died out. Um, but we all remember and know very well, at least in the LCMS, the language 
that each side used in these battles, um, you know, different language at different times. So it's interesting to see the language that Gerhardt uses and which side he falls on. So he says uh, that if you, if, if you take it upon yourself as a minister or a congregation or a regional area to just change the rights of the church, right, to change the language or, or the definition behind the language, right, that's usually our argument, mm-hmm. um, that it is a sin against Christian freedom to do this. It is a sin against Christian love. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen this happen on, on both sides, uh, yeah. both sides of the, the worship divide that people absolutely forget uh, that, that this must be done with the care of the other person in mind because, you know, we're, we're giving the medicine of immortality through it, right? Mm-hmm. The, the right is not the medicine, but, you know, you want your medicine to come in a prescription bottle that's kind of like, you know, it's got the little white cap and it's got the instructions on the side. You know, right. the, the container doesn't save you, but man, does it help out with the medicine? Yeah, and and that this is how uh, we show love, and that they should. He he notes that they should be very careful not to cause a neighbor to stumble stumble by the preposterous use of adiaphora. <laughs> you should, you know, write that on a note card and pull it out anytime somebody uses the word adiaphora. Yeah. Um, well, it seems like so. As you mentioned already, I mean, I can remember the the form of the arguments, the language used in the arguments during the worship wars. And it was always about, you know, these things are adiaphora and we are free. And it it sounds like what uh, Gerhard is saying is, actually, that's a sin against Christian freedom when you begin to make freedom the, the deciding factor. Well, you know, freedom for who? Is always the question, right? Is it freedom to do what I want? Because that would be very, uh, you know, that just fits in with Augustine's man curved in on himself thing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not. Yeah, I'm the spirit I, of our you, age. you, you, you know this, right? How long have you been a pastor again? Uh, Sixteen years. Yeah. So you you know that often, uh, you know, when you quote love your people. It almost always involves you as a minister putting aside your own desires in the situation almost completely, mostly, mm-hmm. for the good for their good, right? So, yeah. I mean, hy- hypothetically, in this whole right discussion, it could be possible it, it, that, according to to Gerhardt and, and Chemnitz and the rest of church history's you know general opinion, it could be possible to do a different musical and text setting every Sunday, right? If you if you have a congregation where everybody's taken liturgics one and liturgics two, you could do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I still I still wouldn't probably uh, based on yeah. what I've come to after this research. Yeah. Uh, but the fact of the matter is this: that our our congregations are not filled with those. T- I don't think anybody has a congregation like that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I remember, you. I remember what re- one of the things that really helped me. S- so th- this is what I've been doing at my parish for six years is, you know, common service. That's it. Um, and the amount of people who have thanked me because they can't really read and they don't want to, ad- not, not ability to read, but like their eyes have gone bad or maybe they can't hear well, right? They can fully participate in the service without having to, you know, 
look like look like their eyes don't work anymore. Or, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I have two children. My my daughter just turned five. She's been singing the entire liturgy in the front row for at least a year and a half. Yeah, right. She's she's just now getting to to read full sentences. So, yeah. you know, that when when we want to talk about Christian love, let's actually look at who the others. Yeah, I don't like that word. Uh, let's immediately look at at the flock to, that we have been given and see mm-hmm. if are there people who are capable of handling constant variation. Yeah. Um, one of your former editors wrote about this because he's the one that kind of convinced me to do this. Uh, mm-hmm. Pastor Ball, he wrote a blog post a long time ago about uh, they have a I, I forget the details. Some sort, some mentally challenged kid in the congregation, and he oh, sings yeah. all the pastor's parts. Right? It's not appropriate yeah. for anyone else to do, but this kid, it, he knows the whole liturgy. He know he yeah. has all the gifts of God deeply ingrained into his heart. Why? Why remove that by constant confusion? Yeah. I mean, like I I've been to churches. One of one of the things that I do remember that I wasn't able to block from my memory. You know, we went to one and we did like the Kyrie from setting one, the Gloria from setting two, the Agnus Dei from setting three. And it was, you know, my my dad's a pastor and he's been around a while, right? He turns, I think, like 79 this year. And he walks out of services all the time. He's like, I couldn't tell where we are, what we were doing, which page we were on. You know, it's it's not that hard to keep. Yeah, We'll, we'll talk about the benefits of it at the end. But yeah, so it, this really goes back to your point that I think you quoted from Winger about, so even though it might be possible, the question is not possibility, but discernment on you know, what is actually beneficial. It kind of goes to the Corinthians argument that Paul makes time and time again. You know, you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Not all things build up. And are we actually building up or are we just causing confusion? Well, and, and another thing that I've noticed uh, by asking people about why they do certain things, and again, like different practices don't offend me. I, I'm totally for the idea of like the pre-Reformation regional rites, right? You had like mm-hmm. the Gallican rite. Um, I'm, I'm not as much of a liturgy nerd as, as some of the people listening. So, you know, don't send me an angry email because I got one wrong, but you had regional rites, Mm-hmm. You know, wouldn't it be interesting if we had like a North, I mean, it, it would be interesting if we have like a Northwest service and a, you know, an <laughs> Iowa service. And I think somebody came up with an Iowa service once, uh, printed it out, but we won't talk about that. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. Gerhardt says that the result of all of this is that the ministers of the church. Now, does this sound like synod convention language? I don't think so. Uh, The rule of this is that the ministers of the church should not yield even for an hour to enemies of the truth who push for the introduction or abrogation of a right in the church Hmm. because they don't want Christian liberty to be subjected to the desires of their adversaries. Now, just just to be clear, I am not saying that several different rites in the hymnal is the the evidence of adversaries coming in trying to teach false theology. Mm-hmm. But you can clearly see from that from those examples from Bodo Nishan that when you have all these different things, the lay people get confused. Are these the yeah. same things or are they not? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and especially yeah, so, when you go out, out outside of outside of the approved sources. Yeah. So uh, it, it's not necessarily evidence of it, but it could be. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And and right. Uh, I got to stop using the word right. Um, uh, the how do I say this? I'll, I'll think about that one, and then let's let's move on. Uh, okay. So the result is that ministers should not yield in these matters, but but hold the line uh, for the sake of actual Christian freedom, as well as the building up of the people. Um, how does this play out then in the actual um, church orders? I mean, what do we see when a guy like Chemnitz or like Gerhard like in like in Chemnitz? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it has been a while since I totally went through Chemnitz's agenda, but I do have it here. I mean, he's got set, he, he has all the texts, like here's mm-hmm. the text you use here. Here's, he even includes music. Um, you know, it's what, what I have found just with this, you know, church order here in my hand of, of Chemnitz, what I have found is that I think that a lot of laity in the LCMS assume that we have a church this. order <laughs> yeah. because yeah. how many times do people come to you and they say, pastor, you know, how do you do this? And in your mind, you know, that this is something that like every parish does differently. Yeah, no, I, so I think you're right. about it, that. It, I think they assume that we are more orderly than we actually are on paper. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, as orderly as we should be, I think, yeah. Um, you know, disorder, disorder has this effect and, uh, lex orandi, lex credendi goes both ways, right? So when right. you introduce variation, it can be very faithful among the, the generation that introduces it. Right. But, but if the generation that follows doesn't understand how to use this variation, they might end up with theological and not just practice variation. Mm. Um, but that's a really good point. I think that needs to be explored. That well, I, I, know, I have one this, generation. I have this, one generation. I, I have might... a, a real, a real, real quick example. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, through this, I was, I was also reading a bunch in, uh, you know, eighteen hundreds era pastoral theologies and stuff, uh, which is a different discussion for a different time. But you know, when you do that, you want to see, oh, what do these people look like? Well, then you go back and. This is going to sound like it's not related, but I think it. I think it is a little bit. Back in this era, when all the men dressed the same, their personalities were much more obvious. Like you go back and you read these guys in the 1800s, it's like hanging out with a friend. Like you can tell what bothers them and what they don't care about and what their weird idiosyncrasies are. Yeah. Um, you know the the commonality of form brings out the personality and the individuality of the individual and sets Mm -hmm. that out there. And our congregations, you know, I, I have two and I've talked to, you know, several other guys with multi-point parishes and, you know, it's some, some days it's like dating two women at once, you know, they're, they're totally different. Uh, So if we do the rights the same, then the, the congregations can actually be more individual and their own personal strengths and weaknesses come to the fore, which makes it easier for everybody to plan and to get mm. stuff done. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah. Cause, cause then you know who you're working with. Yeah. It's, it sort of acts like salt when it's yeah. used properly. Okay. So what are the modern examples? I mean, we've kind of built up, uh, from Gerhardt. Yeah. From yeah. Gerhardt. And then a little bit about Kimnitz. How does this, how does this work itself wh- uh, out in what we currently have LSB, um, and then perhaps other, other hymn, uh, new, newer hymnals. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I went back and I looked at a lot of the minutes from the meetings for, uh, the creation of LSB, um, part, part of which I even personally remember, I, I grew up in St. Louis and so we weren't far from, uh, well, the headquarters at the time and our, the congregation I grew up in was, you know, TLH five and 15, you know, first, let's see what first and third Sundays, communion, second and fourth Sundays, matins, uh, with like confession and absolution added. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, u- unique, very not unique in the LCMS, but it's certainly a variation on the intent of the hymnal. Uh, but we were heavily, heavily field tested for the Lutheran service book. And, and I was musically inclined at the time. So I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, mm-hmm. But all the variation, the, the interestingness of the variation disappeared when we would get back into the regular ritual of, of the common service. Now, yeah. in the minutes for the LSB, at the very first meeting, from what I can tell, there were a couple people that said, we, need, we can have different settings, but we need to have the same right, um, yeah. as in different musical settings. So... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really know what the conversations about definitions of words were with the LSB. According to my definition I've been working with that we've been talking about, we would have, what, four settings of the divine service in the LSB? Yeah. Or sorry, four, four rights. Rights. And one right has two settings. So that would be one and two. Uh, mm-hmm. And then setting three, which is, you know, the kind of recension of the common service. And then four, which was new for the hymnal and five, which, you know, as printed is not really usable for a congregation. So I don't know if it really matters, but, yeah, um, you know, we have four rights in the hymnal and that's fine. Just, you know, pick one and go with it. But I did think that it was interesting that people did suggest that at the very beginning that we should have the same text. There was discussion as to whether or not they should just reprint the TLH and just put new hymns in or rather, mm. Uh, old hymns that are, you know, updated. Yeah. So that, that conversation was there. Uh, from what I remember, there was, uh, they, they field tested three settings. They called them X, Y, and Z. And I think those shared the same text. And from what I recall, it was kind of an amalgamation between the common service and some more modern updates. Um, so, so they had the ability to to have the same right with different musical settings, and you know, uh, didn't choose to go with it. And we have what we have, and it's you can yeah. absolutely use it faithfully, uh, and and do what you need to do. It, What's would, it would have been oh, it yeah. would have been difficult to to after you know having a number of years with Lutheran worship LW, it would have been difficult to have excised what is now in LSB settings one and two. Yeah. And that, and that is lived by that. There is, um, a giant underlying 
theological thing to deal with here that that I've been working on uh, in my spare time and trying to figure out and talk with other people about, and we have absolutely not nearly enough time to talk about it right now. But this ultimately comes down confessionally to a fourth commandment issue, um, you know, because the the you know Augsburg was at twenty four that we retain the rites and ceremonies and the lectionaries and the vestments and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, why? Because that's what the church gave to us, right? The, the the church as our mother handed it over as a tradition. Well, what do you do when your immediate uh, fathers in the faith handed down something different than what was handed down to the, the church in the time of the confessions? Yeah. You know, fourth commandmently, which one, which one takes precedence? Does it matter? Do you go, you know, do we read this like the Quran where you just, the most recent is the most authoritative? <laughs> um, well, it's interesting because, because if you pay attention to, to people arguing about the liturgy and stuff online, which usually means nothing, um, if you pay attention to how they talk, everybody's kind of got a different place where they set their fourth commandment authority yeah. and, and then they follow that. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Um, I'm right now, I'm pretty much just, just stuck on the fact that I, I have seen it in, in actual practice work out that you just pick one, one setting for your congregation and, and stick with it. And it, it brings out, oh, this is the beautiful part. First of all, you can actually look people in the eye when you're conducting the service mm-hmm. and you're not, I mean, you, you realize how it looks when, I don't know, it always looked like this to me growing up when the pastor was leading the service out of the hymnal. I was like, does he not know? Like, does he not have the one thing that he has to do every week memorized by now? <laughs> you know, you right. know, you're, you're, you're blessing people with God's words. If you can't take the time to memorize these, and if you're just reading it, it, it is still effective by all means, but you know, it just kind of looks like, like we're not all the way there yet. Yeah. No, um, I, I hear you. That was no, one no, of the first things I set out to do was to memorize the parts that I'm actually speaking to them. Well, I mean, for me, you know, you realize very quickly in the ministry that very little of your job is predictable. Right. Except for the Sunday morning service. So let's keep it predictable. Now, now the other thing is, is that the ordinaries, as as beautiful and, and theologically rich as they essentially, you know, by essence are by being words of scripture, they also, when, when they're regular and when people have them memorized and inwardly digested, um, they create what like maybe a graphic designer would, would call uh, like negative space. And it doesn't mean that they go away, but the life, the life within the church that happens, you know, in the church here through the propers and all this stuff and the preaching, that becomes even more distinct because that is changing. And so then you can yeah. learn to pay attention to the constants. Um, I, I preached on this a little bit yesterday morning for, uh, you know, waiting Sunday, Easter seven or Ascension one, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh you know, the church is best served by changing as little as possible because the world tries to change all the time, uh, constantly in search of new passions and lusts. Yeah. So let's, you know, let's be, let's be a little bit regular and stable. Plus then, you know what, if you do this over a long enough period, you get the people who kind of go away from church for a while and then they come back. Um, 
one of the one of the great parts about the historic Western liturgy when it's done reverently. And by reverently, I don't mean like overdone, just like you can tell that the pastor cares more about God's opinion than the people's. Yeah, And people come and they visit and I've had so many people go, man, it really felt like I was at church. Yeah. And I, I don't press them on that to, to wonder what, you know, what's what on the other mean. side of that comment. Um, <laughs> but it is, it is interesting. Now, now another interesting thing that, that I included is that the new Wells hymnal did this. Mm-hmm. So I, I, for, I forget what it's called. Um, I think it's Christian worship. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know the the hymn selection, uh, not not great, um, but they picked one text. They have three settings. It, it's uh, it's essentially our setting one and two for the text, and uh, you know they just committed to it. It's great. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's a great hymnal. I haven't looked through all of it. I'm not I'm not picky enough like some people to to be able to really measure that, but that they at least saw this as a historical thing. And um, mm-hmm. I forget they have an explanation here. If I can find it real quick um, about, let's see the settings of their rights now share the same words. So in, so this is what they say about it. The service is the title we are using for a rite of worship with Holy communion. A single text is used in each of the three settings of the service. Having a single text for the service is intended to foster familiarity with both the words and the flow of the rite. In a short amount of time, all worshipers, young children, non-readers, the visually impaired, etc., can become familiar with the text that carries these timeless truths to the head and to the heart. While the single text of the service fosters familiarity, the different musical settings will provide variety. And again, I, I haven't, I, I think I have a copy, but I haven't sat down and looked at it. You know, maybe, maybe it's great. Maybe it's not, but at least that, that sort of philosophy of repetition and inward, deep inward leaning of basic texts is there explicitly. So, so familiarity actually helps us and aids us in, uh, further contemplation of the mysteries of God set before us week in and week out. If, you know, for new pastors, especially d- during this time of year when, uh, you know, a new crop of guys is getting sent out to their spots, what sort of advice or encouragement would you give them to seek to bring uh, wherever they are sent into uh, an understanding of let's not, uh, let's not operate in the manner that the world operates where familiarity breeds contempt, but rather in an, in a space where familiarity breeds contemplation, what, what sort of things would you tell them to do? Ah, gosh. Um, well, I'd say, you know, buy these two books of Gerhardt on the ministry, especially the second one, and just spend some time really looking at those, uh, the duties of the minister and the things that you kind of can and, and, I don't want to say can't compromise, but like don't have the right to change, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, cause that'll give you some, some basis, you know, don't, if, if, if you're, if you're coming to a parish that does, you know, setting one with communion, setting one without communion, setting two with setting two without, you know, and kind of cycle through everything. I don't know if it's wise to jump all at once. Um, you know, I, I would, 
To be honest, Jason, I, I really don't like questions like this uh, simply because I see this as, you know, if, if our seminary education is working as it as it should, um, the men who are being approved for ministry should should be trusted to have the wisdom to know yeah. what the goal is yeah. and the wisdom to be able to read the situation and see, you know, how far away from this goal are you and what stands in the way? Yeah. I mean, yeah. well, I appreciate I mean, that. It, I, I I guess what I was trying to get at is I mean not to not to really put you on the spot, but like what sort of things did you find helpful in explaining? I mean, oftentimes what I find is I find in talking to other guys a helpful analogy or helpful ways of explaining why you know moving in this direction is so important. Something that perhaps I didn't think of. So in in your experience. What have you found helpful in being able to talk about these things so that perhaps if people were, um, I don't know, pressing back against you to maintain this kind of uh, conservative view of the the right, what, have, what, what do you have found helpful in explaining it to them? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, this is going to sound like avoiding the question again. Uh, I, I guess really just, you know, personal conversations about what frustrates them about it and just yeah. kind of, you know, walking through what I, you know, what's the service supposed to do? Like yeah. not, not a practical, you know, what do you put in and get out of it? But what is the, you know, what's the purpose of the service? And then if you can kind of reorient uh, people to understanding, you know, what the, what the purpose, what the goal, what the, uh, most effective, eh, I don't like that term, with the most wise way of going about worship is um, yeah. in your situation that that people can get on board. And, you know, regularity in every everything else as well. And I, I don't mean repetition in everything else, but regularity. If they see that no matter what <laughs> You know, no matter how well you are getting along with a parishioner that might be upset with you, if they have a need, like a real spiritual need for a pastor, and you just go, all right, I'm on it and take care of it, yeah. they will start to trust your regularity on Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really more of a general philosophy of, of pastoral care is, is how Gerhardt presents it and how I've found mm -hmm. it to be useful. Um, you know, when when... I've, I've been relying a lot lately with talking to some people about the office and on those words of Jesus that, you know, my sheep hear my voice. Well, mm -hmm. guess what? You're, you're a pastor and you just got placed, you know, the, all the guys who just went through call service, all the people who God has now placed under your care, they don't know your voice yet. They don't know yeah. how you talk. They don't know how to know when you're being extra serious or extra joking or, or anything like that, but they'll learn and they learn yeah. from just repeatedly hearing you. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's the same in the, in the service. So, you know, one example I like to point out is as you're going through Lent, right, you start with pre-Lent and you're just removing things all the way. And uh, here, one of the things that I do is, is that we we still sing the ordinaries, but we say all the responses. We cut out as much singing throughout Lent as possible, mm -hmm. and finally, you know, then you cut out the glory the Gloria Patri, and you cut out all this stuff in those last Sundays before Lent. Everybody's like, "This doesn't feel right." 
You know, yeah. this isn't normal and it's supposed to not feel right. You know, yeah. you're, you're doing readings about Jesus being led to be murdered. So, um, you know, it, it, it helps with that because the regularity 90% of the time helps accentuate that 10% of natural liturgical, uh, I guess I shouldn't call it irregularity, but you know, the, the natural seasons of the church year. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, Paul, and for this. It was a really delightful read in the Festschrift. If you guys have not picked up your copy of Servant of Christ Church, a Festschrift in honor of John R. Stevenson, uh, please uh, follow the link that'll be provided and pick yours up. Um, Thanks again, and blessings on all your work there in Iowa. Yeah, God be with you. Maybe I'll see you at Bugenhagen or something. Definitely. I'm planning to be there, God willing. Awesome. I'll beat you in softball, so. We'll see. Yeah, we will. We will. (laughs) All right, you take care, Paul. See you later.